Well, good morning, Redemption Church. Great to be with you this morning, whether it's here in the hub with some people, which is fantastic, or you all at home, that is equally fantastic. And today we are in Luke chapter 12, so we've been taking some time to get through that section, but also it's Communion Sunday. And I think there's something about just in God's providence for us that the text that we're looking at today lands on this Sunday because there's going to be a union between the text, communion today, and a future communion that we will all be a part of. And so it kind of syncs together. And so if you have your Bible right now, you can open to or tap to Luke chapter 12. And by the way, thank you for last week. I'd asked how many of you are like analog paper Bible readers how many are kind of going to the digital thing? And I, I was, I found like, man, I'm a part of a club still where paper seems to be kind of, you know, kind of the winning number right there. But more and more people are going to the digital side. And I think it's great because that means you really do have your Bible with you in your pocket all the time if you have a smartphone of any kind. And so I think there is a bonus to really be using both. So pretty cool all the way around. Thank you for answering that question. I was just curious. You kind of wrapped it up for me and that was great. Now, today is going to be, I think, really inspiring and encouraging and at the same time profoundly confronting and a little bit challenging and so that whole mix has been in here for the gospel of Luke I think that's what Jesus does so well he confronts us he kind of brings up our idolatry to kind of scrape it off the top of our lives so that we're more kingdom oriented and so today is going to do some of that as well so what I want to do right now is go ahead and pray for all of our hearts ask the spirit not simply to convict, but to move and inspire us to be more what Jesus wants us to be. And so with that, if you would pray with me, that'd be awesome. Jesus, uh, we come before you uh, knowing that we must be every day more and more dependent on you. I mean, when I read through the gospels and I see what it is you call us to, it is so upside down. It is so backwards. It is so different from not only the way the world works, but frankly, Jesus, to be perfectly candid, it's completely different from the way that we even want to conduct our own lives. We do not want to turn the other cheek. We do not want to go the extra mile. We do not want to love our enemies. We frankly want to claim you and be pretty much just like the world sometimes. And I pray that we will not only repent of such thinking, but truly embrace your calling and command on our lives to actually sow real good into the world, real change by being challenged by your words to put the kingdom first. And so I pray that we don't look at this as heavy handedness, but rather as opportunity. And I pray today, the text that we look at, while there's going to have a level of kind of warning behind it, there's also this really incredible like challenge of inspiration, opportunity, and reward attached to it as well. And so I pray that we will lean into your words, that we will embrace them in our lives. And from that, we will be a people who bring real change to this world by being like you, altogether different than kind of the self-interested tone and climate that so often dominates our society. So help us to be different like you for the sake of your kingdom and your good name. Amen. All right, so uh, last week, uh, Jesus, or actually probably the last couple of weeks, uh, Jesus has been trying to help wean us away from what we sometimes most trust, right? So we've been talking about money and wealth and security and all of that. And Jesus is trying to get us to just stop being sucked into worry, stop being sucked into the cancer of the concerns of this life. And so last week he gave us a challenge and again, an opportunity for us to sort of pursue and follow. He says, you know what? You don't want to get sucked into trusting the stuff of this world to be your security. Rather, he said in verse 31, seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you 
everything you need. So don't be afraid, he says, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Now, here's what I love about this, right? Jesus is like, don't worry, don't get concerned. But if you really feel you have the need to be worried and be concerned, then do yourself a favor, actually be worried about and concerned for the stuff that most matters in life. He's like, if you want to worry or be concerned, be concerned and worried that the kingdom isn't seen enough, that it isn't felt enough, that it's not experienced enough. Because the kingdom is the only thing that will change the world. And I want to really stress that today. Because I think it takes a lot of trust on our part as Jesus followers to really believe that. Because again, as Dana was sharing, going through kind of the gospels and cataloging everything Jesus says as far as how we own and display the kingdom, to do that takes tremendous trust. It takes trust in God's promises. It takes trust in God's provision. It takes trust that that will actually pay off in the future. And so that's been Jesus's heart here. So he's saying, don't get wrapped up in all the other stuff, but rather get wrapped up in the stuff of the kingdom. So in this strange sort of way, he's just trying to move our affections, right? So that we're not saying, I need to pre-plan for the future of this world, but rather pre-plan for eternity, the future of the world to come. So he's still very pro-planning. He's still pro-investment. He's even pro-worry and concern, just putting it in a different place. In fact, he sort of confronted us at the very end last week when he says, basically, this is really an evaluation of heart, right? And wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? That was this challenge. And so again, Jesus loves us and loves us enough to challenge our idols. He loves us enough to break us loose from the things that we sometimes care about too much in this world and instead to care about the things that will actually pay off in the end. So that's his mission and his goal. And while the last two weeks have been about money, this week is not about money, but it's sort of related to it in the sense of it's still about trust, investment, and what we most care about. That's where he's going with this. So starting in chapter 12, verse 35, no sooner does he says, hey, where your treasure is, your heart is, that kind of thing. He says this, he says, be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for the master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. So Jesus moves from these very distinct kind of teaching moments to an illustration here. And yet when we unpack the illustration, we look at what it's trying to get at. There's a couple of things that I think are worth our time to stop and ponder for just a second. So he has a couple of descriptions or kind of pictures here that I think are critical. The first he says, dress for service. And literally what this means is have your tunic or your cloak tucked into your belt. Now, if you picture that for a second, you're like, so let me get this straight, Jesus. You want me to look like Urkel, right? Just tuck it in and be ready to go, right? Like, why would I want to look like Urkel? Well, here's the deal. If you do that, then you're ready to roll, right? That's the idea. In fact, when we go back into the book of Exodus, we see this scene where God tells the people of Israel, you know what? The last of the plagues is coming. And when this plague comes, you want to make sure that you take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorpost of your house. So when the angel goes through Egypt, bringing the last plague, which is death to the firstborn, that angel will pass over your house. 
It's in that scene in Exodus that God then tells the people of Israel, here's what you want to do. You want to make sure that your belts are cinched tight, your sandals are on your feet, and your staff is in your hand while you eat your food because you've got to be ready to Flintstone, right? You're going to be moving fast and quick when the time comes. And so the idea that Jesus is tapping into here is that same thing. He's telling us as his followers, you need to live your lives light and fast. Do not just kind of overweigh your life with worry, with earthly concerns, with filling your barns, with making sure you make this life the best life. He says, instead, you got to live light and fast in such a way that you are ready to roll. When I'm ready to roll with you, I'm going to send you in a direction and you can go when it's time to go. That's his scene that he has here, right? So have your belt cinched up. Be ready to run when it's time to run. But then he has another image here, which is keep your lamps burning. Which frankly, this is just a picture of pretty much every survival show you can ever watch on television. Right? If you've ever watched Naked and Afraid, which if you have, shame on you. No, yeah. I've watched Naked and Afraid. Who am I kidding? Right? So so or or Survivor or whatever else. What is the very first order of business when it comes to surviving in the bush? Build fire. And you want to get that fire built before it's dark, because once it's dark, it's cold, it's tough, everything else. So you think about the first century when Jesus tells the story. There wasn't all the light pollution we have today. There wasn't the level of ambient light just kind of floating around in the, the landscape of the day. So when Jesus says that, they understand it, right? If nightfall comes and you don't have a lamp burning, it is going to be way hard to get that going. And so Jesus is just giving this sense of always prepared, always ready, always urgent, But he's not doing this simply to talk about earthly darkness and earthly disaster. No, again, it's a metaphor. So he, in the story, is the master that is away from the house. And we, in the story, are the servants who are watching his house while he's away. And his point is, one day I'm going to come again. Or maybe in a more immediate sense, one day you will die and stand before me, right? So either way, whether he comes for the final return or we one day depart from this planet and we're right in front of him and we're looking him in the eye, either way, his point is, you want to be ready for that time and that day. And since we're the servants of the house, in particular, what he's saying here is I want you to watch over my affairs with the same dedication, passion, and concern as though I myself were there with you as we were watching over things together, right? So he wants to be clear that we are to have such ownership of that which he is passionate about. We are to have such investment into his kingdom and into his planet that one day when he returns or we stand before him face to face, we can swing the door right open and we say, Jesus, come on in, dude. We took care of it just like you would have if you were here. We owned it to the same degree that you owned it. We lived it to the same degree that you lived it. We didn't let you down at all. No, we were on top of it 100% because what you wanted That's what we wanted. That is the heart that Jesus is getting at here. He wants the servants, us, to have that level of commitment to that which he came into the world to achieve. See, I love this because what it's telling us is that for us it means focus and faithfulness. Focus and faithfulness. And so what that means, I think, when I was thinking about it from my own life, is waking up every morning looking myself in the mirror and saying, all right, your job today, Matt, is to look like Jesus 
act like Jesus, think like Jesus, function like Jesus, make the priorities of Jesus your priorities, Matt, no matter what you do, because Matt, you're going to be tempted to not. You're going to be tempted to make it about you or about your family or about your prosperity or about your comfort or your hobbies. You're going to be tempted to do that, Matt, but it doesn't really pay off like you think. So make sure you are thinking and acting and responding like me. My job every day is to look in the mirror and say, all right, I am to seek first the kingdom, right? With all of its overtones, with all of its expectations, I'm to seek the kingdom first and its righteousness and everything else is then added to me. So uh, when I seek the kingdom first and I make sure his priorities are my priorities, the worries begin to evaporate, right? And the concerns to make sure I create security in this life, it goes away more because I realize, no, he's gonna take care of me. He's gonna give me what I need. Maybe not what I want, right? But he's gonna give me what I need. And so that is to be the heart. It's to look in the mirror every day and say, okay, my mission is to do what I see in the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain. My mission is to fulfill the great commandment. My mission is to walk in the Spirit in such a way that the fruit of the Spirit comes out of my life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, these rich, beautiful, bold, and world-changing things. Like, that is to be the heart. And I'm to do that in my family, or in my marriage, or in my singleness. I'm to do that on my job, as my civic responsibility, as my social interaction allows me, I'm just to simply look and go, I want to be like Jesus. I want to really show the world who Jesus really is, right? And so Jesus is saying to all of his followers in this passage, right? While I'm gone, you are my eyes and my ears and my heart and my hands and my feet. And you are the only me the world will see. Because he's away, right? That's the image he's giving. The master is going to be gone. For 2,000 years, the master, in essence, is gone from the house. This world's his, right? He took claim over that on the cross and resurrection. So there's no question about that. You read the parables, he's very clear. The kingdom is the world. This is his house. And we are now the keepers of his house in his name. So this is why I say the world, when they see us, sees him for good or bad. So if we represent him well, they see Jesus properly. And if we represent him poorly, they see him in an improper light. And that is a key thing that Jesus wants us to understand. So what he's saying is love as I love, serve as I serve, sacrifice as I sacrifice, represent me as the master. We want to represent him well. He knows this is going to be a challenge. This is why he gave us the spirit. This is why he gave us the Bible. This is why he gave us prayer. This is why he gave us his indwelling presence. He knows it's tough, but he's given us what we need to live that out. And we'll even see that here in a little bit, right? But I think it's important because the more I think about this, just as a pastor and as a Christian, I think it's critical that we who believe this book and claim Christ is our own, that we realize that we really are his ambassadors. We realize that the world watches our lives and they're waiting to see like, well, what does Jesus really look like? Perhaps this is even why earlier in this chapter, Jesus warns of hypocrisy in the leaven of the Pharisees because you can have religion that looks nothing like God in the name of God. And Jesus knows there's always a danger for Christianity in the name of Christ to look nothing like Christ. So he gives this kind of sober warning but it's also inspiring. And it's inspiring because of what Jesus is going to say next, right? Because what he isn't simply trying to do is get us to be dutiful. No, he wants us to be responsible 
out of love, affection, and a sense of opportunity that is offered to us in being more like him in the world. So he says in verse 37, the servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. He says, I tell you the truth, he himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. So again, what do we see? Speaks of the master who is Jesus. Speaks of the servants, that's us. And he says, he will reward us if. If doesn't appear here, what appears here is the servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. So the idea is for those who actually embrace those two words, there is something that is going to be given to them. So what are the two words? Well, it says there, if they are ready and if they are waiting. Ready means every single day I'm prepared. Every single day I have tucked my Urkel pants in, right? I'm ready to go. I've got my, my lamp lit. I'm ready to rock and roll. I'm ready to make it happen. I am ready to be like Jesus every single day. So I wake up, that's my goal. When I go to bed, I think about the next day, that's my goal. I need to, again, live the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, Grace Commandment, exercise the fruit of the Spirit in my life by relying on the Spirit to do that in me. Like, that's the heart. I'm always ready. I'm not taking vacations from it. I'm not taking breaks. I'm ready to make it happen. That's the heart. And then with that, not only is there an ownership of the things that Jesus values, but with that, there's a waiting. And waiting here means eager for, longing for either his return or the day I meet him face to face, right? In fact, sometimes I think what happens, especially for us in more affluent cultures like the United States, is we hope that day is kind of pushed out a little bit. Well, I want to get married. Well, I want to have kids. Well, I want to have grandkids. Like, I, we keep wanting to push out the day. I don't need you to come back so soon, Jesus. I'm having a good time right now. I've got plans. I got retirement coming. Maybe at the end of retirement when my body wears down, then you can come back. That's great, right? Like, we do that. Or we tend to be more excited about other things. Like, this year was my 50th, right? And we were supposed to go to Scotland for my 50th. Super cool. I'm Scottish. I would go back to the homeland. But if I'm looking more forward to that, than this day that he returns or the day that I see him face to face, then I need to assess my priorities. Or if I'm more excited about a windfall or some event that's gonna come down the pipeline for me or just some opportunity that I've been longing for, whatever it is, that's not waiting. See, the waiting here that Jesus is talking about is a longing of our heart to see the world set right. So it's not just waiting around. It's I can't wait for. But since I have to wait for a while, since I need to wake up and do life tomorrow, I want to use that time to the fullest. I want to make sure I'm on top of what matters and I'm doing the things that Jesus will reward in the end for. In fact, notice the reward. I think this reward is mind-blowing to me. When I was studying this week, I was just like, that is, I've never really pondered that before kind of thing, right? I'm going to read it to you again. He says in verse 37, I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. So, I'm going to take you to a different scene for a minute to connect the dots. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I want you to go to the final chapter of the story, The Return of the King. 
the end of the story. Aragorn is crowned the king. All of Middle Earth is surrounding. They're celebrating. He steps out into the crowd. Everybody's moved by the might and power and majesty of the king. And then he approaches his four loyal friends, these four hobbits, right? And they bow to the king and he says, my friends, you bow to no one. And they stand up and then the king bows and all of Middle Earth bows to these simple little hobbits. That is your scene right here. That's why I say it's so mind-blowing. So think about it for a minute, and especially with this being Communion Sunday. At the very first communion, when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, this current age, what did he do? He went to a meal where he stooped, tied a towel around his waist, and washed the feet of his disciples. Men who were fundamentally at times faithless, weak, misguided, had the wrong ideas about what he was doing. They were all going to ditch him in just a few hours. One was going to betray him. But for the inauguration of his kingdom, he washed their feet. And then you fast forward. There will be a final meal at the end of this age, at the conclusion of the new covenant. And what does Jesus do there? Then he dons an apron and he serves all of his faithful people. People who were waiting and ready, longing, seeking, and serving him in this age. So in other words, the faithful servants of the master are faithfully served by the master. See, that boggles my mind. Because you think about our heads of state. You think about like a president, for example. If somebody's done something truly amazing, the president will put a medal around their neck. But what the president doesn't do is say, come to dinner. I'm going to go ahead and serve you at dinner. I'm going to be the one that gets your food. I'm going to wash the dishes. I'm going to pour your drink. I'm going to make sure you're comfortable the whole time. We don't do that as human beings. But here the God of the universe is going to put on an apron and serve us humans because we were faithful to his calling. I want you just to picture this for a second. I, I know it's hard to wrap our minds around, but, but imagine there is this time that will come and you will be standing before the risen Christ in all of his glory. He is crowned, he's king, he rules heaven and earth. You are looking at him with awe, with wonder, with bewilderment. You are staring upon him and you are just literally awestruck by what you see. Your resurrected mind with all of its fully intact synapses cannot process the magnitude of what you will be watching in that moment. You will see infinite beauty, power, strength, love, glory, all there before you. You will look on an ageless and timeless being who has such glory inside of glory. Anybody who has ever seen the glorified Christ, you know what they're left saying? Holy just holy, holy. They can't even muster another word, right? That's the only thing that comes because he is so incredibly glorious. And so you will be there literally like trying to catch your breath just to be able to eke out a thank you for all that you did because now I see you in your perfection and I see how much you were willing to give for me. And in that moment when you're trying to say thank you, he will say, no, my friend, thank you. You were faithful, here, sit down. Let me serve you. Let me get you some food. Let me take care of you right now because you were so faithful to take care of that which I most cared about. I look at that and I go, yes, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to waste my life. 
I don't want it to be all about here and now, and then I skip this in the end because I was just too, too focused on this life, too wrapped up in the worries and concerns, right? See, this is what is offered to all who own what Christ owns, who love what Christ loves. This is for us if we make Jesus' way of life our way of life. If we have his values become our own values, and if we really own the challenge he gave us back in Luke chapter 9. This is if you really want to follow me, right? If you really want to do what I'm talking about here, if you really want to be a faithful servant in the master's house, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you want to seek to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose my life for your sake, he says, you're going to find it. That's what it means to be ready and waiting every day, right? Every day, because you never know the day it's going to come. You never know the day you're going to pass from this life or the day he's going to return. None of us do. So he says, this is why you always want to be prepared. He drives this a little bit further in verse 39. He says, understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. So here Jesus changes the metaphor from a homeowner, uh, or from a master's house rather being kept by servants to a homeowner that's protecting against burglary, right? But the idea is sort of the same, whether it's Jesus the protagonist or Jesus the antagonist in this story, the idea we all understand, right? Again, he's just saying, you always want to be ready. And if you're always ready, then you know you will be blessed. You know it. It's when we're not ready. And listen, I want to be clear. I'm not great at being ready. I am awesome sometimes at being self-interested, selfish, earthly bound, wanting to store up my treasures. Trust me, right? It is easy to want to be human, especially in an affluent culture. It's super easy to just want to kind of camp out for a while. Like I get Israel now and why they got stuck in the desert for so long, right? It's the same thing for us potentially. But Jesus says, you know what? You're not going to have any assurance of blessing if that's the way you live, but you want assurance of future blessing always be ready. So from this, Peter asked in verse 41, Lord, is that illustration just for us or for everyone? Which makes perfect sense because again, they already kind of know like, man, he set aside 12 of us and there's 12 tribes of Israel and maybe we're a unique group of people. Maybe we're the unique servants who are supposed to take care of his house until he returns. Like I could see that. Or is it for everybody, the whole crowd standing around? Well, here's the cool thing about Jesus. He does not answer this question directly because Jesus loves to not answer questions directly. But instead, what Jesus proceeds to do is tell a rather long story, kind of a parable, but one that is to be taken to heart for all of his followers. Starts in verse 42. It says, then the Lord replied, a faithful, sensible servant is one whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his, uh, his other's household servants and feeding them. So they're supposed to take care of all the other servants in the house. If the master returns and finds that the servants have done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put all that is in charge, all that servant in charge of all that he owns, right? So you've served me well, I'm gonna serve you in return. I'm gonna give you all kinds of power over what I have. But... What if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while? 
And so he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk, right? So just having a good time, not loving their neighbors, not loving their enemies, not doing the stuff of the kingdom, right? Just doing their own thing. It says the master will return unannounced and unexpected and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. Cutting the servant in pieces there, by the way, is more verbal than physical because you can't cut somebody into pieces then banish them with the outcast because they're cut into pieces. Why would you do that? So it's just verbal. And the servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. Now, there is a lot there. Right? And we could spend a lot of time unpacking all of that. In fact, if you were Catholic, you would realize that this is one of the primary passages for purgatory, right? For the Catholic Church. And so we don't believe necessarily in purgatory, but it's a sober thing. And we could spend all day kind of going, well, what about this? And what about that? Is this the afterlife? And how's that playing the afterlife? And how should I feel about this as a Christian? And da da da. Here, let's just stick with what's simple here. What's simple is that we understand pretty much what it's getting at. And what it's getting at is that we, as Jesus' followers, right? We have been endowed, given much, right? We have tremendous privileges. There's a lot of talk in our culture right now about privilege. Here's what I can tell you for sure. There is Christian privilege. There absolutely is, right? Think about all the privileges that you and I have been given in Christ. We've been given grace, We've been given forgiveness. We have been given newness, right? The old is dead. The new has come. We've been given the Bible. We've been given prayer. We've been given the church. We've been given the indwelling spirit, right? So we have all of this privilege. We've been given things like promise and access and inheritance. You read 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, you and I have been given everything for life and godliness through his divine nature being imparted to us. So when we read the New Testament, we see we have all sorts of privilege. We see that Christ served us, sacrificed for us, gave himself for us. Privilege. But see, in the privilege, he says there's also responsibility. In other words, we are everyday missionaries. The reason he saves us is to then stay in this world and be ambassadors, to be those who create peace, those who share gospel, those who display kingdom, those who do things differently than the world does them, to stand out as lights in the darkness, Jesus says. Like, that's why we stick around. But our heart is to see his promise fulfilled, which is the blessing of the nations. And we know the way the nations are blessed is, then, is really when we, as his followers, choose to be a blessing to the nations around us, to let his priorities be our priorities. And so just as a soldier would be derelict if they sort of uh, forsook their training or their gear, or an athlete would be derelict if they just kind of gave up on their coaching and, and their equipping, like in the same way the Christian would be derelict if they take all of that privilege and just go, oh, awesome, I'm going to heaven one day. How cool, now I'm gonna go live my life, right? That would be a travesty. Because here's the deal. Saved by grace does not mean excused from responsibility. I want to say that again. Saved by grace 
does not mean excused from responsibility. Now, what I'm not talking about here is moralism. What I'm not talking about here is rule keeping. I'm not talking about being religious. I'm talking about being like Jesus. I'm talking about setting our affections on the things that you see his affection for. You see the types of people he cared for and the ways that he cared. That is what we are supposed to be to live like Jesus, to display Jesus, to let his values be our values in all that we do. That's why I said earlier, it's doing things like living the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. It's doing things like living the greatest commandment. It's doing things like learning to love our enemies, forgiving those who have hurt us. As Dana was sharing this morning, it's those things like when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't ranting, raving, complaining, talking about how unfair this is, how this is wrong. He's being framed. He didn't do any of that right? He did something altogether different. He displayed a type of fortitude and trust in God that caused the soldier at the end to say, truly, this was the son of God. The guy he just crucified, he came to the conclusion, this guy is altogether different than anybody I've ever executed in my life. Like that's what Jesus did. And that's what it means to look, act, think, and be like Jesus to embrace his kingdom values. And see, we as his followers we know some things, right? We know some things. And deep down inside, I think we all know those places where we're kind of making it more about us than we are about Jesus. And we know that we should do it different and maybe we're not. See, Jesus' little brother wrote something in his letter, the book of James. He says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. See, I think Jesus got that, or James got that from his big brother, Jesus, here in Luke chapter 12. Because what Jesus is saying to the servants, us, of his house, is that, you know what? I've left you in charge. I want you to do things like I would do them. But if you go, no, I'm going to do things like I want to do them. I'm going to do things like my civilization tells me to do them, like my society encourages me to do them, like my world so often models for me on how to do them. Jesus is like, then you're missing out. You're, you're avoiding what it is I rescued you to do. If you do as I do, I will reward you. Why wouldn't you want that reward anyway? Why would you want to go for the lesser things when I offer you so much more? Like I said, this text is sobering, but it also has opportunity. And it really begs the question of every one of our lives. I mean, I was going through it this week and and I found myself kind of torn because I'm kind of like, well, what kind of servant do I really want to be? right? You've left me, whether I want to acknowledge this or not, you've left me in charge of your house somehow. In other words, my life has responsibility to display your house rules to the world. Do I want to be a servant that gets rewarded or do I want to be a servant that simply gets to heaven? And I go, yeah, sorry about that. Look you in the eye and say, yeah, it was about me more than you. Thanks for dying for me though, right? Like, I know that sounds flippant, but that's kind of the concern, And so that's why I think we should take a text like this seriously. Now, Jesus said something in there. I just want to touch base on really quick. And it was this idea that if I kind of translate it for us and and kind of today speak, he's saying, for some of you who are new to this whole thing, you're new to following me, you're new to Christianity. Hey, I'm only going to hold you accountable to that which you know, right? That was like, hey, if you barely know anything, I'm just going to, I'm going to make sure that, you know, again, you only kind of face the music on the little bit that you know, that you give an account for the little bit that you know. And so for some of you who are really, really brand new to Christ, hey, you've got a lot, you're still going to learn a lot of growing to do. It's okay. We're allowed to grow and learn. 
But then there's another category, and we've been claiming Jesus for a while, right? We've sat through a lot of sermons. We've read a lot of books. We've been a part of a lot of Bible studies, right? We've been exposed to a lot of truths. And so we know what Jesus calls us away from and what he calls us toward. We know what he asks us to stop doing and we know what he asks us to start doing. And to us, me, Jesus says, you know what? Because I've given it all, man, you can give it all. That was the invitation anyway. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's the give it all, right? But give it all knowing there is reward. And that's the thing I want to stress because I think the danger is we go, oh, now I need to be afraid of Jesus one day. No, Jesus is trying to motivate us to reward. He's like, in the end, you don't want to miss out, right? Now, here's the deal. If you miss out, you're still in, right? Paul talks about this. You get through the the flames with the smell of smoke on you, right? He says that in 1 Corinthians 3. You're in, but there's no reward. Jesus says, no, I want you to have reward. I want to be able to put you at my table, and I want to serve you because you served me. That's a a beautiful, inspiring opportunity. But it makes us ask questions of ourselves. In a moment of honesty, we just have to ask ourselves, what type of servant do I really want to be? Right? If I'm just honest, laying there at night, when you're going to bed tonight, just think to yourself, what kind of servant do I want to be? The one that's faithful or the one that's doing my own things? Are there any attitudes or maybe actions, certain affections or lack of affection even that's getting in the way, right? That is not allowing us to be the kind of servant that Jesus seeks for us to be and the sort of servant that Jesus will reward if we tend to be that kind of servant, right? Am I wanting to be faithful to the uh, privileges that he's given, because the privileges are meant to be used, to be leveraged, right? For the enriching of the nations, the reaching of people, the healing of this world. Am I using it or am I just sort of squandering it? See, I, I, I think those are valuable things to ask ourselves. And like I said, the end goal of this is not moralism or rule keeping. It's actually holiness. And I want to remind you of holiness, what it really is, right? It's not just being good people. Holiness is the display of love in the context of mercy and justness. Love and mercy and justness. And I believe the way it translates in our world the most is that we would be a people who have tremendous humility, tremendous servanthood, and an overwhelming sense of trust in God so that we don't feel we need to take control of the issues of life, that we need to plan and prepare for the calamities of life, but rather we just seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, trusting God to provide for us. I think it's that little mesh of things right there that is the real display of holiness, which is love displayed in mercy and justness. And so that brings us to communion. And right now I want to bring up the worship team. And as they're coming up, and as we're preparing for communion, I want to keep all of this in a certain level of perspective. I think it would be very easy at the end of a message like this to be like, now I just feel guilt, or now I'm just afraid, or now I'm just irritated, or that sounded too heavy-handed, or who knows what we could feel, right? 
Here's the thing about the cross. Our sins are paid for. The thing about the cross is that we are now endowed with the position and righteousness of Christ, right? We can approach the throne with boldness and confidence. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus from the sense of kind of this penal part of it. Jesus has settled that. But there's this other part where Jesus says, but you know what? There is varying degrees of reward based on how you take the servant role and what you do with that servant role and how you live that servant role out. But then he points us back to himself as the model of the servant. And I think about that first communion, the model of the servant Jesus, who ties a towel to his waist, stoops down, and washes the feet of we sinful human beings, preparing to go to the cross to wash us clean, we sinful human beings. But then he invites us to be his followers, his servants, caretakers of his house, demonstrators of himself, his ambassadors. And then with that, he says, and if you do that well, if you do that trusting me, reliant on me, humble before me, I will again take an apron. And at the last communion meal of this age, I will serve you again. See, I think we should let communion today be a reminder of what Jesus has done for us and the promise of a future communion where he serves us again to be the motivator this day going forward to be everything he wants us to be to seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, knowing that all these other things will be added to us. So I don't want you to right now go into this time of communion, licking your wounds and feeling bad. I want you to go into this communion motivated, inspired, reminded of his forgiveness and reminded of the responsibility he's given to us, but a responsibility with reward, a powerful reward, a personal reward where he serves us when we are so undeserving of such service, but it will bring him great joy to do that. He already said it's his father's happiness to give us the kingdom. And part of the father's happiness is he will love watching the son serve the servants because they were faithful to the privileges he gave. And so right now, if you have your elements, I want you to take the symbol of his body broken, right? I mean, this is how far he's willing to go to give us the privileges that we have. I mean, just as easily in my mind, I could think like I could just snap his fingers, be like, okay, they got privileges, they're forgiven, and I, I don't have to have any personal sacrifice behind this. But, but God just, he doesn't just simply get his hands dirty. He gets his hands bloodied and his feet bloodied and his life given so that he can endow us with these privileges, right? A grace that saves, but also a grace that gives us opportunity and responsibility. So on that first night, looking forward to the last night, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He passed it out to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So after the meal, he took a cup of wine. And I'm sure he's looking at this and he's thinking, this captures the essence of what I'm going to do, which is not simply giving his life for us. But as we've learned before, looking at Leviticus, there is life in the blood. He's giving his life to us. That's a part of the privilege. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness because he's given us his divine nature. That's why I mentioned that passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. 
This cup represents his divine nature given to us so that we can say no to our worst impulses and yes to his kingdom values in everyday spaces. If we seek him, if we rely on him, if we really say, I want to just know you and the power that rose you from the dead in my daily life. See, that's what Jesus offers us in the cup. Great opportunity, right? But with that also a certain level of responsibility. And so we remember what he's given to us so that we can give it all to him. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Jesus, I come out of this section today with a mixed sense of emotion because I see in my own life where I easily fall victim to me-centrism. Easily, even for the best of reasons. Me-centrism so I can provide for my family. Me-centrism so I can make a comfortable life for the people I care about. Me-centrism because, again, I'm just tired today. I'm discouraged today, whatever. Like, I do those things. And it's not that I don't feel those pressures, but so often I'm not bringing even that to you. I just kind of stew in those things instead of bringing all those things to you and then letting you fill me up, letting you mobilize me, letting you be my comfort and my reminder. And so while I confess my me-centrism, I also long for a you-centrism. I long that you would be more of what you want to be in my life, that I would be more surrendered, more seeking, so that you might be more glorified and more sought. And I know in there there is blessing and contentment, and I know in there there is reward. So I pray that we are all motivated to look ahead to that final closing of the age, the final meal where you are serving us because we have so faithfully served you. I pray that we faithfully serve you. We would never squander what you've given, but we would take every opportunity to be more of what you want us to be. Help us to be like you, Jesus, to display grace, compassion, love, forgiveness, right? I'm not talking about being religious again. I'm talking about being like you, so different, so utterly different, right? Servant-oriented versus self-oriented. So different, Jesus. Help us to be like you. In your good, kind, thoughtful, patient name. Amen.